Well, welcome to Death and Hell, Lesson 1. I hear the chuckles. This might be the only lesson we teach that you don't need to be a doer of anything on. <laughs> you just need to know it for your edification. But I started writing it as death, and then I thought, well, we can't cover death without covering hell, and for, for obvious reasons we'll see in the next few weeks. But I do want you to be encouraged by this. Uh, just like Dr. Hilton Sutton used to say, eschatology is a Bible doctrine, and the Bible is a book of hope, therefore the study of end time should bring you hope. Death is a biblical experience, and all biblical experiences ordained by God should bring you hope. And death is part of your biblical experience, and you're all going to die. Just not today. Not anytime soon. But after this is eternal life and pre in, the, in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I've also found in my Christian walk, anything I'm afraid of, if I can just stare it down in the eyes, it gets smaller and I get bigger. So don't fear your own mortality. It's not biblical to be afraid of death, but realize it's coming. And as I've been studying this, and I'm studying a lot of theology and a lot of great biblical uh, theologians, one man said this, if you don't live right, you can't die right. And that really spoke to me. You can't live wrong and die right. So if you understand dying, it'll motivate you to live better. So let's jump into this because we do have a lot to cover. Death and Hell, Lesson 1, The Doctrine of Death, Part 1. We call this spiritual death. And you have to understand death is a doctrine and we must understand it. The, the one lesson out of all of this I'm the most excited about is this, the lesson on the resurrection. Because one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity is the resurrection of the dead. And this is probably something we know very little to nothing about. And it is a doctrine that's been worked out for hundreds of years with all sorts of arguments and counter-arguments. That is what's going to really bless you, is the, the promise of our resurrection. So this lesson is about spiritual death. We're going to cover all aspects of death that I can, can discover and believe we need to teach. This is spiritual death. Though it may not sound like an encouraging topic or study, death is very biblical. The reality of death makes our present life all the more precious. I'm thankful we don't live forever in this body. I'm thankful that there's a time limit to it because it makes you take advantage of the time you have been given. When you have infinite time, you'll squander it. When you have limited time, you will make the most of it. You will enjoy the fullness of it in the midst thereof. If you know you only have an hour at the swimming pool, you'll enjoy that hour. And I've heard many interviews and talked to old people. One, I saw where one old woman lived to be 104, 105. She said, this much life is a curse. I didn't want to live this long. I, I don't understand the hubris or the pride of people that want to live forever in this body. And they want to somehow freeze their brain or cryogenically freeze their body. That's ignorance. It's not what God has for us. The reality of our death makes our present life all the more precious, and the Bible exhorts us to lay the imminence of death to heart, for in doing so we are made much wiser. Psalm 90, verse 12, and Ecclesiastes 7, 2, and 4 tell us this, that we are to lay to our heart the death, the future uh, impending doom for our flesh, and in doing so we'll become yet wise. Teach us to number our days, that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. Or as Ecclesiastes says, it is better to go to the funeral than to the party. Because when you go to the funeral, your mortality stares you in the face and you start to take things a lot more serious. Even in talking with some of our local morticians and funeral home directors, uh, when I did a funeral in the last year or two, the one man said, 
He said, I've been doing this a long time. He said, I'm watching our community take death lighter and lighter. He said, people don't want to come to funerals anymore. He said, it used to be a, an experience. It used to be something you came and you sat in and you laid your own mortality to heart. He said, now the young people don't even want to face it. They think if they ignore it, they don't come to grandma's funeral, that they themselves will never die. He was making a biblical observation. It is biblical. Ecclesiastes says it is better to go to the funeral than the party. Never shy away from the opportunity to go honor someone and pay their, their, your respects at their death. And I'm teaching all this so that you're not terrified of your own mortality, but it is coming for all of you, and me included. Genesis 3, 17 and 19, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And the sweat of the, thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. This is God declaring to Adam, You're going to die. And every word of God is spirit and life. And here spirit and life says, you're a dirt bag and you're going back to the dirt from whence you came. That's God. That's wisdom. I, in our circles, we're former charismatics, former word of faith. We would never want to talk about death because we got into a rut. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So we were almost superstitious. We would never talk about death. And if you ever planned your own funeral, you definitely weren't a man or woman of faith. If you had insurance, you weren't a man or woman of faith. That's foolishness because it's coming for all of us. And it's better just to stare it down and plan for it because that's part of faith. And we'll cover that in future lessons as well. Thanks to Adam and the original sin, death awaits each and every one of us. Our days are numbered. And right now, every one of you is dying. I, I, there's a couple folks in here that are in their 20s. Everybody else, we're kind of middle age. We're on the downhill swing. If you're past middle age, that means you have less life ahead of you than you do behind you. So technically, we're all dying. Now, we can enjoy the fullness of life and grace for grace, and we can go home to heaven strengthened with eyes that don't fail and ears that don't fail and a body full of natural force, but you all will have to lay this body down at some point and that's okay. It's a biblical experience. Biblically, you must lay down this life to inherit eternal life and receive a glorified body. You can't have a glorified body without checking this one in. We'll cover that in the resurrection. And I'm not eager to get the glorified body. I like what Lester Summerall said. He said, I'm not eager to die. I haven't had enough of this life yet, but the time will come when I'll be done and I'll be ready to move on. Our days are numbered. Biblically speaking, we each have an appointment with death. And I want some of you older folks to be able to face this and prepare for it. And once it's prepared, you can enjoy what's left over. It's like getting everything prepared for some event so you can enjoy the time between now and that event. Preparation makes life more pleasurable. For this reason, death is as much a part of life as life itself. We don't even know what life is until we understand that there is a, an opposite, a polar opposite called death. And once you understand what death looks like, you begin to enjoy life a lot more. Ecclesiastes 3 says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose, every delight, every activity under the heaven. The very first thing it says is a time to be born and a time to die. 
there is a time appointed for death for all of us. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to a funeral than a feast, for death is the destiny of those who don't live by faith. No. Death is the destiny of every person. You have a divine destiny in Christ, and it includes death to your mortal bodies. And the living should take this to heart. That's us. Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. You can't escape it. I want you to be fearless in the face of death. It is coming for every one of us, and you should be excited about it because it's a biblical experience. It doesn't mean you want it today. It doesn't mean you want it next year, but there's a biblical time. And when you understand that, you prepare for it. And when you understand that, you make the most of every step along the way so that even in your death, you do it biblically. As the, as the theologian said, you can't live wrong and die right. So if you realize death is coming, you can make sure you're setting your house in order for the next 25 years and you're making the most of everything you're doing between now and the time when you cross your finish line. Amen. Both Old and New Testaments agree that physical death is an appointed event for all of mankind. Except for the church's participation in the catching away of the saints, death is unavoidable. And even in that event, technically, your body dies. The problem we face with death is that for, for Christians who are naturally minded, the problem we face is that this flesh is more real to too many Christians than the spirit realm is. And so because this flesh is more real and these clothes are more real and this table is more real and food is more real and entertainment is more real, you fear the loss of that. And you don't realize that the spirit realm is more real. The kingdom is more real. The Lord Jesus is more real. The Holy Ghost is more real. The word of God is more real. But understand that technically, even in the rapture, when you're transformed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, that this which is super real to you, this dies. It, it, it's almost as if a nuclear strike hits it. It's instantly gone. And you pass from death into life in a glorified body. So even in the rapture, this thing that we have to shave and scrub and perfume up and dress, it's gone, it ceases to ever be. That's death. And really in that regard, we're, I don't know if this is new age sounding or if this is super, super trippy science. In that regard as a spirit being, we're just phasing like energy from one phase to another. Maybe that's a little too weird or far-fetched, but that's how I see it. That we're a spirit being in the natural, in our body, as, as the Bible says, you, you plant the grain, you bring forth a, a new wheat. You sow it in death, you reap it in incorruption. You sow it in corruption, you reap it in incorruption. Consider the following facts about death. Death is mentioned nearly 1,000 times in the Old Testament. It's biblical. I guess you could die unbiblically, but to die is biblical. To die on a drug fueled binge with a bunch of hookers is not a biblical way to die. But to die with your loved ones and your children and grandchildren gathered around you at an appointed time that God revealed to you and you lay hands on them and bless them by the gift of faith and then you give up the ghost, that's a biblical way to die. That's the best way to go. That's the most biblical way to die. You release your spirit. 
you fall asleep in the Lord after you've blessed your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and your entire house is in order, and they know where all the bills are, they know where the will is, they know where the inheritance is, and it's all set in order, and you've gotten rid of all your knickknacks and your paddywhacks and your junk shacks. To leave your family with a bunch of junk to go through is not a righteous way to die. For that, your children will want a five gallons of kerosene and a road flare because that's how you solve mommy's hoarding problem because that's about what it's worth, fuel for the fire. Death is a biblical event and experience. Death is the way of all men. All who have gone before us have died. Every generation since the book of Acts thought they'd see Jesus in the rapture and none have. And I believe we are of the same faith. We believe we'll see Jesus in the rapture. My personal doctrine is I won't see him in the rapture. I don't think I will. That's my personal doctrine. Sometimes world politics get worse and it feels like he's coming any day. But the Lord promised me from the book of Job I would be gathered to the grave in a ripe old age. I don't think that's 55. And if I'm gathered, if the Lord spoke to me, this is my personal word that the Lord gave me when I was fighting the spirit of death. When he spoke to me out of Job that I would be gathered to the grave in a ripe old age, to me that's in my 80s or I don't think I want to live to be 90. But I think 80s, late 80s, I think I'll be done. That's still another 40-something years away from me. Some of you are older, so your ripe old age is sooner. (laughs) You're a mango that has developed before I have, and so your ripeness will come sooner and God will pluck you and bring you to heaven with him. Death has already touched every person's life in this church with the passing of a loved one. And there's the spirit of comfort in those times of mourning. Jesus tasted death for every man. Something, isn't it, that God would die and understand death for us? God is the God of the living and the dead. Should the Lord tarry and you not see the catching away of the saints, you too will experience the death of your body. And if you live right, you get to die right. But if you live wrong, you can't possibly die right. I'm aiming to die in a ripe old age with my children, grandchildren surrounding me. And I can lay hands on them, bless them, declare a prophecy from the word of the Lord, and then distribute my wealth by my mouth. And then just take my last breath and pass from death into life. Because really to leave this body of death, you're passing from death into life. That's what I'm aiming for. I think every one of you should aim to do the same thing. It's the most biblical way to die. To die of sickness is not biblical. To die of, of uh, calamity or accident is not biblical. But to fall asleep at an appointed time that God has revealed to you because you walked with him. And to lay hands, that's what you see in the first multiple deaths of the Old Testament. The patriarchs gathered their, their progeny around them and blessed them and then passed away. And were gathered to their fathers at the time appointed. Death is not to be feared unless you deny Christ. And you can be born again and deny Christ a little bit every day through your living, and maybe that's why some people fear death. Because of the curse, all flesh is corrupted. Our mortal body must put on an an immortal body. This requires death. In order to receive the fullness of your redemption, you have to lose this body. Amen. The Bible speaks of three deaths. And again, we're establishing the doctrine of death. The Bible speaks of three deaths. Spiritual death, physical death, and the second death. Spiritual death is a separation of the spirit of man from God due to sin. We understand that from Genesis. Isaiah 59 gives us a lot of verses on that. 
Physical death is a separation of the spirit man from the human body, either due to the cessation of life in the human body or because the spirit man is released from the human body. And then the second death is the eternal banishment of the total man from God into the final misery known as the lake of fire. The second death is not what we hear much of. If you're born again and you endure to the end, you shall be saved from the second death. We should have no part of that. But this, the second death isn't even hell right now as we know it. The second death will swallow up hell. That's an eternal misery and an eternal separation from God for eternity, forever and ever and ever. So let's look at spiritual death. The next lesson will deal with natural death. And then we have lessons on hell. And then the lesson on the resurrection. And then whatever the fifth one evolves into being as we study this out some more. Spiritual death. Most people understand death as the cessation of life, but this is only partially true. We should say the cessation of biological life. That is your body dying, cancer ravaging your body, car accident traumatizing your body, uh, maybe war killing your body. That's only partially true when it comes to, to death. The Bible describes two stages to death. First, spiritual death, then physical death. Spiritual death is a result of a person's initial rebellion against God, requiring one to be born again and really to be born again in their spirit. Spiritual death implies that there was a time in which the person was alive spiritually unto God. This condition of being spiritually alive is confirmed in the scriptures. Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, or one translation says a living person. So God made man, he formed him out of dirt, and he made him to have the bones that we have, the amazing body that's fearfully and wonderfully made with all of its biological systems, and yet it still was not jump-started until he breathed into it the breath of life. And the word breath in the Hebrew is rawak, in the Greek it's pneuma. The word breath is translated spirit, wind, uh, demon, angelic, holy ghost, or ghost is, is rawak or pneuma. God breathed into Adam and jump-started him with a spirit. Well, I don't want to take any sidetracks with this. Man was made to be alive in a different sense than plants and animals. Man was given the breath of life directly from God Almighty. Genesis 7.22 calls it the breath of the spirit of life. New King James, the breath of the spirit of life. Animals don't have that. They have a soul. They have a mind, a will, and, a, and an emotions. They're not worried about existential questions. That is, what happens when they die. When an animal dies, it ceases to be. And animals don't go to heaven. Your pet, Fido, Fifi, Jaja, Mr. Fiddles, whatever, he's not going to be in heaven. He ceases to exist once he's dead. I believe there will be animals in heaven. The Bible tells us so. Uh, the earth is the Lord's taste. There's mountains in heaven. There's cities in heaven. There's lakes in heaven. Jesus is coming on a horse. That kind of lends me to believe that there'll be animals in heaven. They just won't be your animals. And you're not going to have this weird, perverse affection for them that humans have today. I don't think when you get to heaven, you're going to let a heavenly dog lick you in the mouth. Nor do I think you're going to seek comfort from a heavenly dog when you get to heaven. Because God will be your comforter, comforter as he intends to be right now. I think it's an insult to God that we seek comfort from beasts. Amen. Man was created to have not just a soul, but also an eternal spirit made after the image of God. 
when we get to our lesson on the resurrection, I'm going to show you some things from the scriptures that will baffle your mind concerning this natural body and the glorified body we are to receive. And I think it's going to challenge you to go search some things out and understand there's more to what's coming than we understand. And that really this, what is man that thou art mindful of him? This is but a vapor. This is but a short time of our existence for what is to come. John 1, 4, and 9 says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. This refers to being born or being conceived, and that those babies, when they're conceived, they're alive unto God. And being alive unto God, they have no need of salvation until they die spiritually. This is why our doctrine teaches us that babies, should they be aborted or die, stillborn or miscarriages, they go to heaven. They don't go to hell because they're alive unto God. It's the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the earth. So every man or mankind that cometh into the earth, we understand that being the birth experience coming through mama's womb, they are lit. They are alive unto God by the light that is Jesus Christ. Because those spirits proceed forth from the Father of spirits. They are made to be alive. And as we cover here in a moment, when you sin, you die spiritually. Now you must be born again. And where are you born again? In your spirit. Your soul is still a work in progress. Every man coming into the world is lighted with the life by the Father of spirits. This individual spirit man is the breath of life given to every person upon their biological conception. I think we've taught recently that uh, even science has recently been able to photograph or capture on film, at high-speed film, that the moment, there's a, there's a moment in time when the sperm inseminates the egg, they actually have documented a flash of light. My personal belief is that is the light of God being breathed into that fertilized egg. And as Jeremiah said, before I formed you, I knew you. That there's a light, a spark of life that is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the earth upon conception. Somebody pointed out the hypocrisy that right now NASA is saying, we have found microbes, microbes on Mars. Therefore, there is life on Mars. What about my baby in my womb at the first trimester? That's not life. That thing with a heartbeat, eyes, fingers, fingernails, fingerprints, that's not life. But a couple of ancient microbes on Mars, that's life. That's foolish. That's the fool saying there is no God. Amen. <laughs> Since when are we so interested in life on other planets when we're killing the life in our wombs? That's hypocrisy. Since God is the Father of spirits, our spiritual essence proceeds from him. It is breathed into us, giving us our unique dispositions and callings. Jeremiah confirms this. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Notice, before we were ever even conceived, God knew us. That's because he's the father of all spirits. I knew you, your spirit, that divine you. I don't want to say divine you. Let me scratch that. The real you, that's as if to say you're divine. You and I are not divine. I don't want to be misunderstood. We are not divine, but God has created us. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now, this is very critical, and there's a lot of teaching we can do from that that we don't have time for, so just listen. Before Jeremiah's biological body was physically conceived, his real person, now that distinguishes biological body and his real person, 
His real person was intimately known by God. It was set apart and given a special assignment. You are the same. Before your mom and dad ever conceived you, you were known intimately by God. You were set apart and given a special assignment. It doesn't matter who you were conceived by, where you were, what womb you were breathed into. There was a divine destiny regardless of last name and DNA donors. And that's why God can use anybody. It doesn't matter where you come from. You could have been conceived by rape. You could have been conceived by a prostitute. You could have been conceived by a test tube experiment. If God breathed the spirit into your body, all that matters to him is spirit in the great scheme of things. There are three foundational truths here worth noting. Before our parents conceived our biological bodies, giving us a big nose or a little nose or a cleft palate or club feet or big hands, little hands, big build, little build. Before we were given a DNA package, God already knew us. He had already set us apart for his use. You're created to be used by God. You're not created for you. You're created to be used by God. And you were already ordained. That means you were given a divine purpose. Don't think ministry ordination. Think ordained or set apart for a divine purpose. That's every one of you. There's something God has given you to do in this life, and it isn't to live Monday to Friday and retire from a factory. That may be part of your existence, but that's not your divine destiny. There's more to your life than living like Cookville or wherever you may be from. The real us, the essence of who we are is not our body, but our spirit man that proceeds from God. It gives life to the physical bodies conceived in our mother's wombs. Without the breath of of God, Our biological bodies are nothing but inanimate water and dirt. We've all been to a funeral and seen a corpse. And you can look at it and say, they're not there anymore. They're gone. That is just a shell. That's just biological material. You give it enough time, it will return to dirt. It's nothing but dirt. It's 70% water by volume. And the water helps to make it moist, but without the breath of God, the thing is dead. Even when the the eyes gloss over. It's really amazing the energy that is generated by the body because the spirit of man dwells in it. And the second the spirit departs, all the energy systems cease. And I don't understand how a doctor could possibly be an atheist, except he chooses to be that stupid. Amen. We begin life as an infant alive unto God, even as Adam was made a living person. At some point, we receive knowledge of the commandments of God and choose to rebel against one or more of them. It is at this moment that a person spiritually dies or a person dies spiritually. That is, they are cut off from fellowship with God. Now, oddly enough, you you study the Ten Commandments. Most of even your pagan cultures recognize the Ten Commandments, not from Moses, but as natural common sense. Even the pagans don't lie. You don't lie, it's wrong. You don't have another man's wife, that's wrong. You don't steal from another man, that's wrong. Even tribes in the remote places have some similitude of what we would call the Ten Commandments. They have an honor to their deities, even though it's not the right one. They have a sacred set-apart ceremony for him, and then they have all their moral code, which all of it very closely mirrors the Ten Commandments. That's what Romans 2 says, that the heathen have the Ten Commandments written upon their own conscience, and they honor it when the Jews don't. Amen. So we see that when you sin for the first time, you die spiritually. You're cut off from God. 
Their spirit man does not cease to be. It merely ceases to be alive unto God. This is part of dying spiritually. Divine fellowship is terminated. God forewarned Adam that rebellion would result in death, spiritual death. Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He's saying, the second ye rebel against me, there was only one commandment given. Therefore, there was only one way to rebel against God. Today, we have 10 billion ways to rebel against God. They only had one way to rebel against God. And what did they choose to do? The one thing they were told not to do. The one thing I tell you not to do, you got to go and do. We have 10 billion ways to sin against God, it seems like. God help us. They only had one and they chose it. God delivered to Adam the first spiritual commandment with ramifications and every commandment has its ramifications. Don't eat or you'll die. Adam disobeyed God and instantly died spiritually and Eve as well, even though his body lived for another 930 years. That's what we don't understand. From the moment we die spiritually, usually as a child, we'll still live another 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And you think you're okay because you're still alive. That's the mercy of God allowing the pagan to live to have another opportunity to be born again. He was also thrust out of God's garden. Typically when we sin and rebel against God, the curse comes and we're thrust out of the blessings of God. We must be born again to enjoy the fullness of God. Uh, Look at my little point here. A man's rebellion indicates to God that the man doesn't want what God has to offer. When a man rebels against God, it indicates to God, I don't, what, I don't want what you want, God. If you wanted what God wanted, you wouldn't rebel against him. If you didn't want God's best, you wouldn't try to pioneer your own. If you didn't want the blessings of God, you would have never left him in the first place. So please understand that for your personal life today, that your, your rebellion and my rebellion against God indicates to him, we don't want what he has to offer. So judge yourself and figure out where we're doing that so we can repent and and show the Lord through our lifestyle. Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. I want everything you have for me in this life. Paul echoes the spiritual law of rebellion brings death in Romans. Romans 7, 9 says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. When we die spiritually, It's due to rebellion for the first time. It separates our spirit man from God, and now we must be born again. This is the doctrine of spiritual death. We must be born again. Now, if you're a Christian, that is called being born again. You receive the salvation of God, and Peter and John make the distinction that it's being born again. Your spirit man has been made a new creature in Christ. Bottom of page three, it's evident that Paul was referring to was referencing spiritual death here. His rebellion against the law of God killed him spiritually, though his body was still alive to write the Roman epistle. His physical death would take place about seven years later from the time of this writing when he was beheaded at Rome at the command of Nero. Paul said, I was alive once, then I knew the law. He was raised a Jew, so the law he learned were the 613 commandments of the mitzvah. He would have passed through his bar mitzvah, who would have become of age and been responsible for the law. And at some point, as a young Jew, a young Benjamite, he knew a law of God from the Torah, and he rebelled against it. And he's teaching us here doctrinally that when he rebelled against the law of God, he died spiritually. Yet his body continued living until his Damascus Road experience 
when his spirit man was born again and it continued living, even though it was under a curse, as he called it in Romans 8, this, or Romans 7, this body of death, who shall deliver me from it? It was still alive until he could write this epistle. So he was not referencing physical death, but the spiritual death that required him to be born again. All right, we're moving along pretty good here. We still have a few things to cover. So that brings us to at what point does a person die spiritually? And that is what we doctrinally call the age of accountability. And this is a doctrine we have to develop because of the spiritual tension of, all right, at what point, at what point do you die? At what point do you die spiritually? At what point does the knowledge of God's word come and then all of a sudden you choose to rebel against it? This is establishing spiritual death. So this is the doctrine of the age of accountability, which Baptists are really good at working out and probably are the ones that gave us that title. I don't know for sure. But let's look at this on the top of page four. For an unknown season of time, Adam and Eve were alive to God until they rebelled, died spiritually, and were thrust out of the Garden of Eden. We don't know how long that time was from their creation until their rebellion. It could have been days it could have been years. It could have been millennia. We don't know. I have to think it was a short time because they didn't conceive any children in the garden. And two people naked running around are going to figure out how parts work. And eventually a kid will be conceived. But we know that the first children were conceived outside of the garden. So I'm thinking it's just a couple of days. How in the world can you be alive for a millennium? having sex and not procreate. If they would have procreated, they would have had children just like them that were sinless in their flesh, sinless in their soul, sinless in their spirit, and we would have had two classifications of mankind on the planet, those Adam and Eve that had fallen and offspring that had not fallen. We have no record of that, so we assume no children were conceived. It has to be. Therefore, that kind of limits our time frame. How long does it take for a child to be told don't do that and then they do that? I was doing good, Lord, until you said don't. I didn't even think about it until you said don't. And then you said don't, and now I think about it. Now it's all I can think about. <laughs> Paul stated in Romans 7, verse 9, he too was alive to God once, but at some point he received the law of God and rebelled against it, killing him spiritually. Adam, the proto-man, that's just a fancy term that means the first man, and Paul and every man had to grow into their souls, just like little babies do. They both started as innocent, naive, and ignorant, but through experience, growth, parenting, and training were then presented with the option to serve God or not serve God. They both eventually chose to not obey God, as we all have. The logical and theological question that arises is this. At what age, then, does man become responsible for hearing the law, understanding the law, and then choosing from their own free will to either obey or disobey the law? This is called the age of accountability. I don't know if it's 100% accurate in my life. I personally believe, because of the vividness of the memory, I believe I died spiritually at the age of four. I, I fell when I was three or four, and I split my tongue open, climbing up an aquarium fish tank and they had to stitch my tongue together and it caused a speech impediment and I remember going to speech therapy as a four and five year old but I remember being in the speech therapist's office in Baton Rouge Louisiana 
And at the end of a speech therapy session, they had a goodie basket for children, and you could pick one. And it had little spider rings or bouncy balls or jacks or wiggle worms. And I remember the therapist stepped out, and I was going through the basket, and I found one of those rubber fishing wiggle worms. It was purple with the hot pink tail. And that was, I wanted that. It's cool. So I took it. And as I was shifting through the basket, I found a second one. I took that one too, put that one in my pocket. And I knew I didn't need to. But what I remember vividly is she came in and she said, did you get your prize? And I said, yes, ma'am. I found two wiggle worms, but I buried one of them at the very bottom and I only took one. I remember that like it was yesterday. And I don't know if the, vi- the memory is so vivid because that was when I, I plotted to violate God's word. And I knew it was wrong and I demonstrated my knowledge of it being wrong because I had to conspire to cover it. I'm a four-year-old, I found two, but I buried the other one at the bottom of the basket. It's at the bottom of the basket. That's why you can't find it. I personally think that's when I died spiritually and then I didn't get born again for another three years. We know that little children, though born with the sin nature in their flesh, are innocent in many regards to rebellion and sin, and therefore are not held to the same level of accountability as an adult. Their soul is still naive. It's still innocent. It's developing. We know God is a merciful and just God. Foolishness is sealed up in the heart of a child, but acts of willful rebellion only develop as the child's soul develops. With our one-year-old justice, or he's almost one, he is starting to show signs of will. He grunts. He shakes as, as little children do. He gets mad. He gets frustrated. That's his little soul coming alive. He understands no, no. In fact, if he's doing something and you say no, no, and you start walking towards him, he starts doing it faster so he can enjoy it just a little bit more before you pick him up. <laughs> he understands no, no. Or if you say no, no, he'll start walking away from you faster so he can grab it. That's his little well, that's, that's foolishness. It's rebellion. He knows no, he knows it's going to be taken from him, but his little soul understands, but I want, I want, I want. That's rebellion, but it's not full-fledged rebellion against God. It's the foolishness that's in his heart flexing itself. If he were to die today, he would go to heaven. Second Samuel, let's see. Let me, let me finish this paragraph. Consider what David said about the death of his young son. Second Samuel 12, 23. But now he, the young child, is dead. Therefore, should I, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And through the original Hebrew language, we understand that the boy was probably four or five when he did die. He was not an infant, um, as it has often been assumed. I lay this out in more detail in our book on Samson. We have a lengthy footnote on that. David clearly indicates that the boy did not go to the abode of the damned for David himself would join his son. Everyone agrees David was righteous and went to Abraham's bosom. We'll have to see lesson two, the doctrine of hell. Therefore, we have clear evidence that this boy died innocent, but with a sin nature. It was, after all, David's sin that brought divine judgment upon his son and not the child's own sin. So by the very fact that David said, I will see him again, and we all know David went to heaven. Or we, say, we should say righteous, the uh, Abraham's bosom. Then the son did as well, this four or five-year-old who died prematurely. The scriptures are not clear on the age of accountability, but we trust that God is merciful and just. For some, willful rebellion may come at four years old, as in my life. 
For others, it may be 10 years old, maybe due to a mental disorder. Uh, there are many other questions to posit here of which I can only speculate. So I throw these questions out there to you. Do mentally handicapped people ever reach an age of accountability? And there, of course, are varying degrees of mental handicap. Some people are 50 and they have the mindset of an eight-year-old. Can a child be born again before ever dying spiritually? I've heard of children as young as two and a half and three giving their life to Jesus Christ and being born again. I personally believe you can be born again without ever having died spiritually because in one stage you're a living soul and the next stage you have eternal life. There doesn't seem to be any indication that you have to die spiritually before you receive eternal life into your spirit. If a child dies while they are still alive to God but aren't born again, aborted, babies, accident, sickness, will they ever obtain eternal life in Christ having never needed to be born again? So that question is, let's say you miscarry. We lost a baby um, before justice was born. So that's a living soul, a living spirit. If he's in heaven, or I don't know the sex of the child. So that baby's in heaven. Does that baby ever get the opportunity to be born again? Does the baby need to be born again? Or does the baby spend forever in heaven as an eternal soul? I don't know. Maybe the baby goes to heaven, hears the gospel preached and says, I'll have that. I don't know. This, these are speculations. These are doctrinal questions that when you search the scriptures and you don't just be a Sunday morning only Christian, these things come to you. And they're worth scratching at the scriptures to uncover. If not, does that mean there will be two classifications of spirits in heaven? Born again spirits and spirits still alive unto God. Because there's a distinction in the scriptures. Or do children get to hear the gospel in heaven and make the decision to re receive eternal life there? Which then brings the next question, could they possibly reject the offer of eternal life in heaven? Some of these things start to get out there and great is the mystery of righteousness. That's my, my answer. Uh, I don't know. Great is the mystery of righteousness. And that's my next sentence. Great is the mystery of righteousness. I am personally still working out my doctrine on these questions. So almost done here. You must be born again. We are teaching this curriculum on death and hell. And the first death we all deal with is spiritual death. We were all alive unto God once upon conception, upon being birthed into the earth, upon developing our soul through being a, a child, an infant, and then a toddler, then, a, then a, a young child. And at some point, every one of us understood that stealing is wrong. Even the pagans get that. Murder is wrong. Even the pagans get that. Lying is wrong. Even the pagans get that. And yet, typically, that's probably either lying or stealing is the first sin most people commit. Lying or stealing. A matter of truth or a matter of possession. Spiritual death requires one to be born again. And thank God I look at you. I know you. You're all born again. John 3, uh, 3 and 5 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ established this doctrine for us. You must be born again. Why born again? Well, because your spirit was alive once, it died, and now it must be born again. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed this time, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Spiritual death 
is what condemns mankind to an eternity apart from God Almighty. Not wickedness. Wickedness doesn't condemn you. Being dead spiritually. You can be alive unto God and still commit wickedness. You have to repent of that. I was talking to a Russian man uh, this past week in Uganda. And I said, so how do you think you might see God? And he said, I, I think I do enough good. I said, so you're kind of of the mindset your good needs to outweigh your evil. And he said, yeah. I said, well, how do, how do you know when you've met, made that point? How do you know all your evil and how do you know your good's enough to weigh, outweigh it? If, it? if it's about wickedness sending you to hell or goods getting you into heaven, then it's all works-based. But we understand that it is rejecting Jesus Christ and being dead spiritually upon your death that sends you to hell. And it's about being full of faith and believing on the righteousness of God to redeem you that saves you, not of works, lest any man should boast. Spiritual death is what condemns mankind to an eternity apart from God Almighty. Dead spirits cannot live forever in the presence of the living God. And there's no amount of works you can do to resuscitate your dead spirit. There's no amount of goods you can give, money you can give. Even as Paul said, even if I sacrifice my own body, it profits me nothing if I don't have love. There's no amount of good works you can do to resuscitate a dead spirit. It must be born again through the work of Jesus Christ. Dead spirits can only be redeemed through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So that concludes our introduction lesson on death and hell, and that is spiritual death. There is a lot more to study out on this, obviously, but I only want to do four or five lessons on death and hell. I think our final lesson will be about setting your house in order and how to get ready for your loved ones once you're dead. Because when you leave them a mess, that's not very loving. In fact, it's pretty selfish and irresponsible. And as we started off by saying, you can't live wrong and die right. And so if death is coming for every one of us, then every day involves a preparation for death. We would rather go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because then we can be faced with our mortality and that'll cause us to live a lot more effectively. Amen.